Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the CSGO Hour. This week we have a bit of a special episode because Jamaican and Mist are unfortunately not with us this, with us this week. Uh, they had other obligations to attend to, so instead, for the first time ever, we have two guests on at the same time. First up, we have Vendetta. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And our second guest is our first ever return guest, I think. It's Foreign. Welcome to the show as well. All right, Matt. All right, so we're going to talk about what happened in this week of CSGO. And first up, we have probably one of my favorite topics in the CSGO scene, which is the French scene. Because obviously we had, <laughs> I think it's everyone's favorite topic, actually, when I think about it. But obviously we had Vitality winning DreamHack Atlanta. They beat Luminosity in the final. Pretty easy victory there. They beat Complexity in the semifinal. And then they managed to beat Rogue and Fraxus in the group stage. So let me go to you first, Vendetta. Because leading into this tournament, a lot of people were like, ah, we have a bit of doubts about Vitality, how they're going to do. They've been struggling online. So was this tournament enough for you to kind of start having faith in them? Or what do you think? I mean, it's not really like I'm going to grant them like a pass as a tier one team or anything like that by any stretch of the imagination uh, at this point. I mean, to me, the just the level of teams at the tournament isn't high enough for, for that to be the case. Uh, I also think, I mean, the only thing we really got to see and kind of solidify was the fact that Siwoo is is a baller pretty much that's kind of only the confirmation we got out of the event outside of that it's you know sparring performances from uh from i guess the, the more known names on on that side of vitality uh i think mbk had a pretty good tournament but you know overall they're still you know hits and misses i mean they start off the tournament in classic french fashion of uh of losing to ghost i mean they still drop a map versus complexity and again no slight towards complexity but you know, since the major, they haven't really been a team to, to be feared, I guess, in that sense. So if you're looking, you know, to be to become a you know top five team in the world, which I'm assuming is the the goal of that vitality team, then you know you can't really have those uh, those dips in performances. Because if you do that versus better teams, you're going to get punished, and then you just get shoved out of the group stages instead of ending up winning. Yeah, so one of the things I noticed in particular is that there was a big difference between their T sides and their CT sides. Like CT, they mostly looked they mostly looked flawless against these teams. Obviously, at the beginning, it wasn't like entirely flawless, but once they got going against in the playoffs against Luminosity and those kind of teams, their CT sides looked really good. But on the T side, like obviously in the final, it was no match. But against Ghost on the first day, against Complexity, I still think that there's a lot they need to sort out in terms of that but foreign let me let me hear your thoughts on vitality and mbk as an in-game leader in general maybe yeah actually i i noticed something similar to you which is that when any time like because they had a whole bunch of maps where they would have a t side that was like oh it's competitive with the other team and then they would swap to the ct side and basically just close the whole game down so i do think it's a flaw that like the teams at this tournament weren't that great like even with a lot of these players being Players we haven't seen in top form for a while, you still look just name value-wise, they had way more quality than pretty much anyone in this whole tournament. So I also find it too hard to take them spanking this tournament too seriously. But I will say, I, I it is the first LAN. I don't think you can judge someone too harshly after one LAN. 
Sure, they had some problems online, which is why this is only their first LAN. So I guess in that sense, it reminds me a bit of when people were saying with like Optic, like, oh, they've only been to three LANs. That was like, yeah, because they failed about 10 qualifiers, you know. So with that caveat taken in mind, I don't judge them too harshly. Like I'll give the other players a bit of a chance to get going. I did think that they were a little underwhelming in as much as like the hype for this team for me is all the names. Like you need everyone to be at a good level at a very minimum. And like Happy and RPK, for example, look pretty bad in this tournament. Like they looked... Like they didn't really seem like they were in, in in a place that made sense in the squad. Also, the team was just super hard carried by Zewu, so I can't really know what they're going to be like. Like it can't that can't be the only firepower as they're going forward. So I thought there was like a mixed bag. Like there was some positive signs. Definitely took care of business winning out a tournament like this. That you can't take that for granted anymore. We've seen teams like G two. We've seen teams like North go to some of these kinds of lands over this year and not win them actually. So you can't. You can definitely not take anything away from them for winning, but I don't think it was the toughest group to play against. Yeah, I kind of agree with you there. Like, one of the things I think about this team is Saibu is obviously the main star of this team. I mean, he proved in this tournament that he can definitely, at least at this level, he can do it. He can live up to the expectations. But then once you go down a bit, you need to have a second star in this team. And I don't really know who's who that's going to be. Like, is that going to be Happy, RPK, or is it going to be Apex? Like, Apex is not consistent enough, I don't think. And Happy and RPK, they haven't really been in top form for, like, a while. So I don't know who you think it's going to be. I I think it's a really tough situation for them to be in. I mean, as, as good of an event as MBK and Apex had this time around, I, I don't think it's... As you said, like, Apex has consistency issues, but I think that comes with the kind of role he plays within the team. So I think that's to be expected. But that's also why you can't rely on Apex to be... You know your your second star uh, on that side, and I think MVK is going to run into a similar issue for himself. Where, again, at times, you know, in game leading is going to take too much of a toll and become too much of a, I guess, not necessarily a distraction, but you know, something that you need to focus so heavily on that you're not going to be able to deliver individually uh, every single game. Uh, so it really comes down to you know Happy and RPK and what Duncan mentioned as well. We didn't really see any sort of like you know blistering moments from them at this tournament uh, at least not at a consistent enough level to, to the point where you can feel okay with them uh them being the the next man up after ziwu so that's really the issue i have with it but yeah i mean it is early days but you you kind of would have liked to seen at least uh some semblances of it as to what they want to you know have as i guess uh not necessarily roles, but you know how they want to go forward with it. Because there's no doubt that he was going to be the hard carry. But I think that's also like as it is right now, that's going to be the the, the pitfall of this team as well. Like they go as far as he was able to take them. Do you think he was overhyped at all? Is there a way to tell yet? Like obviously people. I mean, come on, mate. He's played, he's played one LAN. How could he not be overhyped? Like the fact that he people were even talking about. Like here's the thing: if he'd have just had this LAN now, and everyone was happening about, holy shit, this guy could be amazing. Like then you could even say you already he's overhyped. But like this guy was overhyped before he even got to a LAN. And anyone who's counting when he was in like against all authority playing absolute nobodies. Like I mean, those people would just buy a, a fucking a bridge off my family in Brooklyn. Like it's just ridiculous. So like what people don't realize is it doesn't matter if this guy goes on to be the best French player of all time. Like you can't tell that yet. I don't know why people need to believe that they've got magical powers and they can sense when someone's like super skilled. Like pick any of the ones that I've ridden hard with. So like device, simple, who else would it be? 
Nico. maybe a liege. Yeah, Nico's not a bad one. I, I didn't hop on like when they first were just wrecking online. Like I waited till I'd seen at least something like, you know, solid like tier two land performances. Or in the case of someone like Simple, he was already playing the best teams. It's just for some reason, people didn't acknowledge he was that sick a player. You know, people, I, I mean, his case, probably the, the whole personality angle, but you know what I mean? Like I don't just pick him at the very beginning because I don't claim to have magical powers. But once you've seen enough of someone, then you can test. Like the big problem for Zewu is you haven't yet seen the land where he does badly. Like, what does that look like? Because it happens for everyone. The difference is if you're a god, bad land might still look, you know, might have the seeds of a great performance in. So I think he has to be considered overrated overall, just because like the general community consensus is very, very high on him. Whereas even though I certainly would give him that like potential, you have to also do it. Like you can't just kind of give someone like you don't crown someone before they've accomplished something, you know. Yeah, I think like he's, I guess, just again, uh, from I guess, a mechanical point of view and everything, like he's equipped to potentially you know, make himself worthy of that price that he's been given. But again, yeah, like his track record in terms of what he's accomplished in this scene is obviously minuscule. He's done well, he's won VMAC Atlanta. That's pretty much his resume up to this point outside yes. of grinding FPL. Uh, but obviously, again, like, and 12 months time he could have you know done a lot more so we're not saying that he's not going to be in a situation where he's capable of it but as of right now he is just because he hasn't had the opportunity to show himself enough overrated what do you think about this angle where usually when you have a young player like this you want them to develop under like an experienced in-game leader and in this team obviously nbk is still adjusting to the role he's really new to it so could that be a problem for Saiwu that maybe he doesn't really get that thing where an in-game leader puts him in the right positions and all of that stuff? I mean, I'll I'll put it this way: like uh, again, as as much as as much flack as Happy has gotten over the the last couple of years, one thing he did really well for himself before he ended up in you know before they became envious and and all of that. Um, early on and if you want to go back to like the recursive days and so on like one thing he was actually really good at was making you know getting actually a lot out of the players on his side like someone like apex for instance they thrived uh playing with uh with happy in a lot of instances so i think like overall the team should have enough knowledge as to how to go about a game to actually be able to put so uh, into into proper positions to to succeed and i also think when you run into a player of you know a certain talent and certain capabilities then it's going to be hard for him to not do well for himself i think same thing can be said for uh, you know a, a player like simple right like it wouldn't really have mattered or nico for that matter like he doesn't need to have like the ideal surroundings around him in order to improve and become a better player it's just a matter of how quickly it's going to happen depending on you know what kind of big game leader he has what kind of ex I guess leadership around him he has to to teach him the ropes. Like eventually he's gonna reach that point, but how quickly it's gonna be, that's uh a bigger question. Yeah, it's a kind of a tough one, I think, because like I would agree generally with the principle, like he should try and come up under it's not even that they have to be a tactical in-game leader, just someone with a lot of experience, you know, so they can kind of guide you through some of the initial aspects. Cause for me, one of the most important things a good in-game leader does is like help you tune your role in a little bit better so you might be in the right role but maybe even within the role you play maybe like the wrong style for you or you play a way that works on the lower level and on the lower level because you're like easily the best player with someone with the kind of mechanical skills Iwu has you're taking all these chances and making players that actually on the higher level will just get you straight up murked like they just won't work so i think an in-game leader can help you with a lot of that stuff and i can't say i would say that mbk would all happy at this exact moment would be appropriate in that sense. 
but I don't really think it's that big a concern. Like, first of all, I actually think Ziwoo in this team, unless he plays really badly, shouldn't really get too much criticism. It's his first big team. He's already the best player in the team at the moment. The rest of the players are all trying to work themselves back into form. I think actually he should get a pretty big pass no matter what happens. Good or for real. And I think moving forwards, like lack of good in-game leaders in the French scene is a bigger problem than just for Ziwoo. So uh, yeah, ideally he'd probably have someone who would be of that ilk, but there isn't really anyone in the scene that fits the bill. So, I mean, he's just, just out, shout out of luck, isn't he? I think one actual benefit he does have is the fact that because he is uh, the best player in the team, then again, he's going to have a lot of things catered to him. So he's going to be in a position where he's going to be allowed to at least uh, potentially succeed because he's in a very different spot from a lot of other young players who get brought into, uh, you know, potentially really good teams. They get more of a backseat role. And, and how they approach them. Maybe they work their way up to, to the point where they become the focal point of a, of a team's game plan and whatnot, but he's already gotten that unlocked. So he's going to have plenty of opportunities at least to, to showcase himself in that sense. But yeah, I, I think they, the issue they have in terms of leadership and in-game leading, it's not going to necessarily affect the individual development of Zaiwu. I think it's going to be more a cap on how high of a level they can reach as a team. Yeah, I mean, one thing that wor worried me personally is uh, I watched them play CT side on cash, and all of a sudden they have two orbs on their CT side, and they're in the hands of Apex and NBK, and not in the hands of Saiwu. So that's one of the things where I was like, mm, is he already getting taken off the orb, or what's going on there? But we'll have to see how that develops. But speaking of in game leaders in the French scene, there's another team that I wanted to talk about from that scene, which is G2. Obviously, recently they. Well, they haven't done the change yet, technically, but it's heavily rumored that they're going to kick out Existence and Smith, replace them with Jax and Lucky, who are both from 3D Max, both inexperienced players, but Jax is actually 26 years old. So what do you guys think about that change? Because obviously Existence is a guy who would be that in-game leader in an ideal scenario, but it hasn't really worked out for him. I mean, I, I saw the change, and I was expecting it to be the announcement of Body and Smiths being taken out, or like, at least in an ideal world, in my head, that would have been Smiths and Body being replaced uh, on the team. And I mean, who they would have brought in, that wouldn't have mattered as much to me. Obviously, like if you go back a couple of months, it would have been like Saiwu or Kyushima being brought in for that, and then still having existence to kind of actually have the pieces to the puzzle to to uh, to do something really good. I'm not sure what they've thought of they're going to be doing with this kind of a lineup move. I, I don't know if they're reverting back to Shoxie as an in-game leader, which has pretty god-awful track record. I, I I just don't think they have any sort of idea as to where they want to go from this point on. It, it seems weird to me, but what I know of the, the two players they brought in is obviously that they're solid individual players. I mean, Jax was a player that actually was, uh, was uh, highly sought after by... Uh, by these two French teams, like Vitality and G2, uh, at one point they actually turned down playing for Vitality, from uh, from what I understood. So there's obviously some, like some upside to the players they're bringing in, but I thought they shifted out the wrong players. What do you think, Thorin? Your boy Existence is uh, getting the boot. Uh, on the one level, like put it this way, if bear in mind you have to consider that this seems to have been influenced by Ocelot and the G2 management. Like it, if I had to guess, this is pure speculation, not going on any inside information here. It looks to me like 
They made that decision earlier in the year. They gave MBK a try, didn't really work. They gave Shox's lineup a try, also didn't really work. I'd say equally bad results overall, although obviously the GT lineup with Shox played a lot more lands than the MBK one. They only played a couple. So at that point in time, Ocelot's initial approach is he's just letting Shox do what Shox wants to do, and he's hoping that he's picked the right player to kind of side with. I don't think I think he kind of had a Sophie's choice on there. Both those lineups are garbage for my money, so I don't really know which one's better. The reason why I thought the existence lineup is better is I thought it had a better long-term future. Because if you if you notice, with I think as soon as they'd lost that tournament, I think it was Dreamhack Valencia, the one that North won. As soon as they lost that one, so that would have been about their third, I think their third land together. I already was off the train that like that particular lineup's going to be really good because it just was quite clear it wasn't. Like Kenny S and Shocks both weren't good at the same time. The rest of the team was still getting back into even basic playing form. So then my logic was, assuming we haven't just wasted months putting this lineup together and we're just going to dismantle it, surely in the future you start doing like one roster move at a time. And then not only does that help you build a stronger team, it also helps you kind of like check where in the circuit is the is the connection broken, as it were. Like what's what's the issue with the chemistry here? So the part that I do find really puzzling is if I'm just a pure outsider, I'd agree with this. I'd say, yeah, remove existence, remove Smiths. They're easily the worst players in the team. Uh, also, uh, the angle for removing existence is the team doesn't particularly look like an existence team. Like they don't, like I, I think the G2 team has comparable firepower to a team like Big, but Big looks a lot better tactically and they look like they have a much better idea of what they're doing, even if they lose the game. G2 never really had that. Like I always thought the T sides were kind of underwhelming actually. Like I thought they would be much, much better. So as an outsider, the answer is easy. Remove existence, didn't work. So what's the point in having him in the team? The problem is knowing some of the things I do know about the French scene, I actually am very suspicious of the of the fact that it looks like they said in all the interviews they were giving existence time to implement the system. So there's only two conclusions I could come to. Either one, he's completely misread the current meta and the way he decided to play it was poor, in which case absolutely remove him. Or the other option for me is in some sense, someone like Shocks has meddled with it and maybe existence coming on board came with the caveat of like Shocks will give input or since he was the, definitely the best player in the team towards the end, maybe he just skewed the team in that sense of like asking for things to be called around what he wanted to do since that's all that was working. In that kind of a world, now I do kind of feel like everyone's fucked up on some minor level because that's a compromise between three parties. You've got existence compromising his system, Shock's forcing a compromise in the short term to get what he thinks is better, and then the org siding with Shock's that even though on the one hand we're saying we're going all in on the system, actually now let's just abandon that entirely, kick both the players, and just reset the clock entirely, and even worse, with seemingly no actual trajectory. Like even if this guy Lucky and Jack's come in and they're awesome, what kind of team is it going to be? It's got no in-game leader. It's got real, no real structure to it. What, and Kenny S just stays forever? Like, that's the angle I don't really understand what metric you were judging G2 on because unless it's existence who's just completely misunderstood what he wanted to do in the game, in which case, fair enough, can't argue with that. It does look to me as though you just gave him an underpowered team and not full control. And then when it failed, said, right, well, you're kicked anyway. Because as, as we've alluded to with Vendetta there, logically, you would think the next move now would be remove Smiths or remove Smiths and body, bring in these other two players, see what existence does with them then, then decide if you want to kick him or not. But instead, it's an all or done for some reason. What do you think about the players they're bringing in? Obviously, I, I, I don't know how much you've watched them, but obviously you'd think that the next move would be something like, okay, bring in an LDLC player. They've been playing well recently or bring in, you know, Scream, 
Kyushima, someone like that. So is it just a matter of money or is it just, you know, we want to try some completely new ways to actually something to these players that makes them a better choice than the alternatives? Well, the thing is, I had this speculation. Again, it's just speculation. But if I had to guess as to why these particular players joined, if you look at the guy they added as their coach recently, Malek, who used to be with Envious, he actually was not only with Envious Academy when someone like Jax was there, but he also was with, I think, a team in between then as well that they played with, maybe Millennium or something. And so whoever that, I forget, no, 3D Max maybe. Uh, and whoever it was, like he obviously has some experience with these players. So I would guess that... Since he's just come in as a coach, his suggestion is like, oh, if we need players, I can recommend these guys, you know, to fit these roles or whatever. The problem is, like, I saw the Jacks guy when he played for Envious Academy when I went to Gfinity Elite Series. And put it this way, he wasn't some player I thought, like, wow, this guy's going to be amazing. In fact, quite frankly, no one in that team was. It was also a team that had Hadji and They just looked, like, better than the competition, but not particularly incredible. So, yeah, the fact that he's Jax is 26 years old and has only played on the academy level and didn't exactly blow my mind there. Yeah, it's not really a... A reason to get super hyped that's why this move's so weird because i feel like if you were willing to make wholesale all-scale roster moves you either do it two months ago and make the hard decision like you know if you fail the major we're going to buy these players before they're all locked up or you have to ride it out and just add in these players and stick with the existence thing and see if he turns it around because for me you've just chosen the worst of all worlds which is you wait until vitality got a massive sponsorship and got locked into big contracts so you're not getting any of those players LDLC just had a really decent performance. So first of all, some of them are already going to think, why should I go and risk ruining my career by looking bad in G2 when I can just stay here for a while? And also, you never know this. For all we know, LDLC has contracts that are just buy out to, up to the hill. Like maybe it costs 100K to get an LDLC player. We can't know. So I feel like just business-wise, G2 might have just painted themselves into a corner and these might be the only players available, people at that level where you're gambling no matter what. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it definitely could be the case that LDLC just has insane buyouts. But what about guys like Scream and Kyushima? Are they just like gone from the French scene forever? Have they been exiled? Or, I mean, I would think that bringing in Kyushima to this team would be like a perfect fit. Like, if you replaced him with either Smith's or Body on the old team, he could like entry frag, he could anchor bombside, he could do all, all of the stuff you need. So, why isn't he being considered? I'm not even sure if he was asked, which is the weird thing for me. But obviously, no, now he's ended up in Cloud9, which, uh, I mean, he's probably okay with that. I'm getting an adventure uh, over in North America and getting a chance to, to show that he still knows how to play. Um, I mean, judge, judging from what he was able to do at Blast and obviously the, the final few games they had of Pro League, he did pretty okay for himself. Um, but yeah, like in, in my mind, that's what G2 always should have done, like, way back when again before Siwi gets locked into to vitality that felt like two obvious players like him and Keo to to slot into a G2 side in order to make that you know again then you have a tons tons of firepower you also have that good mixture of experience and actually role players that fit uh you know a structured team as well uh to, to make it work so I don't know how <laughs> yeah it's it's just confusing to me that it it didn't happen I can't know the, you know the the reasons behind it all i know is that keo wouldn't have anything against playing with the g2 guys i mean that's he said that himself that he wouldn't mind playing with uh, any of those players so again could be inner french politics we never know that scene is just so completely messed up that it's it's hard to really get a good grasp of it unless you're one of the actual players involved in all of it 
Like, if you notice, it's not just G2. Vitality also had no consideration for Kiyoshima or Scream. Like, these players don't exist for G2 and Vitality. And the main reason, as far as I can tell, is with Kiyoshima, it's just attitude-based. People don't like some of the things he's done in the past and the way he's handled himself. I think mean, that's perfectly legitimate. And then for Scream, I mean, this is the easiest one of all. People just don't respect him as a player. Like, he's considered to be too like one-dimensional as a player. And I think that's not even an unfair categorization because one of the things that I find so underwhelming about Scream is I've seen very few players that had his mechanical level who don't know how to get theirs in a game. Like, you can even put Scream on a team. He's been on a whole bunch now. Like, the Envious, where it was just completely collapsed at the end and they were literally just sort of like, do whatever you want. And even people like Happy were like, fuck it, just dial this one in. In that scenario, if you're a big fragger, just go get yours. A scream seemed actually incapable of doing that. Like he, what's bizarre is I get the sense that he's one of those guys where the rest of the French scene thinks he has to play free for all style because he's just got such a one dimensional playing style. I think he wants the in-game leader to tell him what to do. Like, I think he's the guy who probably wants to play for an existence or something like that. But for whatever reason, his career is not in a space where that lines up. So for scream, I don't think it's anything to do with, with like attitude or whatnot. I think it's just to do with, People think he's kind of got a played out playing style. And then for Kiyoshima, he's just done a few stupid things behind the scenes that stick in people's memory. Right. Let's transition away from that depressing topic that is the French scene in general. And let's go back to Dream Mega Dance a little bit because there were some other teams playing there other than Vitality. Obviously, a big one was Luminosity, who went all the way to the final, kind of surprising to some people, I guess, because they finished the last place in ESL Pro League. Uh, one move they did recently was they made Yell the in-game leader instead of Steel. So kind of playing like more of a loose style. So Vendetta, let me ask you, have you watched much of this uh, Luminosity team? Do you have any thoughts on them? I mean, outside of... Uh, I haven't watched much of their, their online games. So obviously them being in the North America divisions makes it a little bit uh, awkward in terms of just time zones. But I obviously did watch them play in, in uh, Atlanta because... I mean, just again on paper, it's a pretty decent team, right? Like in terms of the the players they have, the names they have on there to the point where they should be able to find some success. And I mean, I think they got yeah they got relegated from EPL, and I think they got relegated from ECS as well. If not, then they're playing uh, like relegation matches. So pretty much their online season has been absolute garbage from from start to finish, and they haven't shown anything at all. And one of the like the really worrying things for me is the fact that uh, players who you know, back in the Immortals lineup, especially for the end of it, some of the players that were starting to actually become a consistent performer for them uh, just have not been the same player at all after they had to go back to Brazil and do, uh, well, deal with the entire aftermath of the Immortals uh, lineup. Like Lucas specifically is a player for me who has just gone from, at first, being uh, on the team because of Henny uh, until he eventually got to the point where he actually started carrying his own weight and becoming a, an integral part of the Immortals lineup. And now, in this Luminosity lineup, kind of reverted back to, to, I guess, his initial position where I don't really see where he fits into all of it. Um, I also think just the Luminosity lineup was a bit of a weird makeup, like in terms of how they held on to Nekis, they booted, uh, booted PKL, uh, Kept Yell, but his strength was whopping. But then they had him brought in Henny. We've seen how Henny is, and like, or how teams with Henny in them uh, deal with the dual op setups. Like how it, it's it's kind of a weird dynamic, right? Because when KNG was in the Immortals lineup, it was no doubt that KNG was a better opper than Henny. 
Uh, and I think Yell was a pretty consistent offer back in the old Luminosity lineups as well. So, but he's going to take a backseat to Henny because everybody takes a backseat to Henny. Um, so yeah, just the makeup of the team just seemed awkward to me. And I was actually really, really surprised to see them make a finals um, in, uh, in Atlanta. But I think it helped them that they had, again, not the hardest, uh, hardest group. I don't think they make it through group B, to put it that way. And uh, I think Ghost are their own worst enemy in that sense, like when they went up against them in, uh, in the semifinals as well. So I think we, we kind of got to see the, the real face of luminosity in the finals versus vitality where it's just the bottom line is they're, they're outmatched and they're not as good as they they once were yeah it definitely seemed like ghost crumple under the pressure in that particular matchup but uh foreign let me know what you think about luminosity uh i do i definitely think the placing is a little bit generous like basically uh, since they came second in their group I mean, you would expect they would have been playing Vitality, but if anything, Ghost fucked themselves because Ghost actually won against Vitality in the best of one. And then the problem at this LAN was Ghost's main firepower is Wardell, and he was actually pretty underwhelming at this tournament. Like, I don't know why, it's just a random one tournament where you just shit the bed. So I actually thought Ghost mainly outplayed them over the whole series in that semi-final. Like, I thought they were the much better team, but you're, at the end of the day, it's Counter-Strike. You have to shoot people in the head. It doesn't matter if you catch a guy off guard, if you outthink him, outmaneuver him. Someone has to kill someone at the end of the day. So that will always be the X factor in Counter-Strike, and Ghost just didn't have enough. Luminosity, I find kind of underwhelming because to touch on what Vendetta was saying there, like the players in this team who they kept and who looked like they had some potential are not making use of any of it while they're in this lineup. So, for example, like Nekis had some tournaments earlier in the year. He looked pretty decent. Yell was supposed to be actually the guy when they had this old lineup before they got the Twins that everyone was saying, like, would be one of the guys potentially one day moving up to an SK or an Immortals. He's looked absolute garbage ever since Henny joined the team. So I don't know if it's that they have to cater to the Twins and steal and do whatever they want because those guys are looking good. But the rest of them... I don't even know what their purpose is in the team. If they have potential, they're not able to show it. So that makes me feel like the team balances off. And then if I find out that the in-game leaders changed and that they're swapping that up, that's also not a great sign. I also think it just tells you kind of the ceiling this team has, that Henny is like far and away their best player. And I actually consider Henny one of the most overrated players to ever play professional Counter-Strike because when you put him at the tier one level, somehow his style of play just gets eaten up by everyone. So if he's like this much above, a, above and beyond everyone else in the team it makes me really concerned for whatever happens if they get out of this kind of a scenario but then again i don't really know that you're going to see them at any big lands like they seem like a team who as you've just said like they don't, they're not achieving that good online so nowadays if you're in their position you've got to be dynamite online whether you're good online or not because you've got to get through those super sick brackets to get to the qualifier and then get the qualification spot so it might not end up mattering. They might just be stuck at this level, whatever this would be nowadays, probably like tier three, if we're being honest. But I don't really see what the ceiling is for them as a team. They just seem like another one of those squads where maybe a couple of players could be good in another team, but the Brazilian scene's a bit of a mess itself. Yeah. I mean, did, uh, did you say that they, uh, I think it was mentioned that Steel had given up being an in-game leader, uh, so Yell had gone back to it, right? Yeah, they switched it for this land. Like, Steel had been in-game leading in the online season, apparently, yeah, and, and then uh, Yell for the land. I think that's actually a step in the right direction, because Yell was the in-game leader of the old Luminosity lineups as well, and we were gradually getting better and better when they were making, you know, EPL finals or ECS or ECS playoffs and so on. Uh, with the old lineup, which, uh, again, just on paper, didn't have the same kind of firepower as they do now. I think it also allows for Steel to 
for the first time in quite a long time, actually be in a position where he can be one of the focal points of the team. So I think he's going to be able to deliver more consistent performances outside of them. But again, I think it comes down to what Duncan mentioned as well. The fact that when you break it down, Henny is probably the best player on that team by a, by a fair margin, but Henny doesn't do well consistently ever. Like he's the, the poster boy for being like a, a highlight player who will get you that nutty 4k that everybody remembers from, you know, match X. But, you know, when you look over the match in total, that was, you know, 50% of his entire, you know, impact for the entire game. And obviously that's not going to do anything for you over the long, uh, the long term. So I think that that is, is worrying. Like they're going to be in somewhat of a similar situation as Vitality. Like they're going to go as far as Henny's able to take them at times. Uh, but again, like that's not going to be something you can rely on uh, a lot of the time. And I think it's going to be even worse when you have to go through so many stages. Again, like uh, Duncan mentions, the fact that because they're not in a situation where they get invited to everything, they have to grind out like multiple stages of qualifiers. Then eventually, Henny's going to have a dip here or there at some point throughout those games, and that's when they fall out. Yeah, I was definitely surprised that they managed to actually beat Ghost in that semifinal. And that's kind of another team that I wanted to touch on because we've kind of seen Ghost rise a bit up lately, like uh, Steel coming in as the in-game leader. And obviously they had Crystal for a while, but then they swapped him out for Neptune, who actually seems like he's a pretty decent like entry fragger and role player in that team. And then obviously Wardell, like you said, he usually has big performances, but then at this tournament he had quite a dip. So what do you think about Ghost Gaming in general? Like, do they have potential to reach further than they did at this tournament? I think it was uh, an interview uh, at Atlanta or in Atlanta that Steel did with Angel TV where he actually said, we want to be a top five team in the world. I think that's a hint of this, uh, delusion uh, going on over there. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, props to them for having, I guess, uh, goals and everything. But I, I think they can definitely... I mean, technically, he just said he wants to be. He didn't yeah, say yeah, he wants exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong about, you know, hoping for the best and shooting for the stars and whatnot, but I don't think that's a realistic uh, goal for them necessarily, at least not with this kind of a makeup uh, of a team. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think Ghost, they would be a team that's, uh, you know, potentially good enough to win your DreamHack Opens here and there. Uh, and, and actually do some damage, like be, a, be a, a very annoying team to play against, even when you get into the bigger tournaments, if you want to look at, you know, a DreamHack Masters or, you know, something like an IM Chicago or something, it's not going to be necessarily the easiest task to, to topple these guys in a best of one kind of scenario. I do think they struggle once you get into best of three territory. Uh, also, I mean, they do rely an insane amount on Wardell. And obviously they need to get more consistency out of the, the other players. So they have something to fall back on when he's not necessarily going off. And I think that's where they find this little start now where there are a bit of a development stage. Uh, so I don't think you can like look negatively on, on Atlanta too much. I mean, obviously they should have been able to close out that 14, 10 lead they had on Inferno versus Luminosity and made it to a finals. But uh Considering how much success, you know, relative to, to what I guess their expectations were over the last couple of months, I think they're on the right trajectory. And I also think like the, the swap in for getting a Neptune in the lineup instead of Crystal is, again, a step in the right direction. So they're going to be around. They're going to be annoying to play versus for a lot of teams, but I don't think they're going to become world beaters anytime uh, or at any point. Definitely not top five. 
No, I mean, I, I mean, I'll eat my own words. I mean, if they if they do, I mean, all credit to them if they're able to do so. But I can't see, maybe in some sort of like, on an alternate universe that Andrew's controls or something that that might happen. But in this world, that's not happening. The top five in NA, maybe that counts. I think they're there already. Actually, maybe that's what he meant. Who knows? No. <laughs> all right. So, yes, yeah, Orin, go ahead. Uh, the main angle I'd go with this one is like I, I I will say since they only made the Neptune change like whatever it was like a month ago or something I guess in theory there's still some some room for growth but most of the rest of the lineup to me looks pretty set like I don't I don't think all of a sudden Cooster and Sabrosa are just going to get one and a half times better like I think they probably are the players that you've seen over the year so when I look at them as a squad my main issue is a lot of the credit I give them is on steel. Like he looks like he's run the team pretty well. Like he's got the map pool sorted out. They seem to react fairly well in the game. The problem is I just don't think he has the tools to be able to take them much higher. Like they, they rely on Wardell to an extent that's ridiculous. Like I couldn't believe how many times I saw him buy like a, a low econ op, like just an op only or like an op and one flash or something, and no armor. And so, but the whole reason he had to do it on some rounds is because like they were doing a force buy. So if he doesn't have an op, he's basically just going to lose the round in that team if you're against anyone who's got quality. So for me, if, if if you make one or two roster moves, now we can start talking about a team that could be a really strong team. But it, it, then the main issue, the obvious issue becomes who who is good, who is going to join a team with a player who can't play in majors. Like that's just, it's just realism. You know, I can't really think of any people in the scene who would be an upgrade, who'd be available to join the team. So if you steal, you've just got to work with what you've got. And I, I totally understand by the way, why in-game leaders always think their team is better or is going to be better than they are. Because when they look at the game and they see like, these are five mistakes that I think I could fix next time they just imagine those mistakes getting fixed and over time you get better and better. Now, what they oftentimes don't consider is the opponent can fix his mistakes as well. And also it's just not realistic to think that your players are going to play flawlessly and fix all the mistakes in their games. Like sadly, what you're going to find with some of them is some of them just won't improve beyond a certain level or if they improve, they're just, you know, treading water compared to the rest of the scene. So I think Wardell's definitely a prospect. I will say this. You can forget any dreams of this being a top team the second he gets signed to any other squad. So it's a real positive at the moment that he's turned down the Cloud9 type offers. But if he keeps being really good and this team isn't at a higher level, it's just inevitable eventually he's going to go to a bigger squad. And as soon as that happens, unfortunately, I think the team's either dead or they reset all over again and still has to find someone else who's kind of like a an unpolished gem, as it were, to, to mold into a top player if he can. Here's a bit of an interesting one, because I want to know if I'm going too far with this and if it's just me. But considering what he's working with, do you think you can make the case for Steel being the best in-game leader in North America? Because when you consider the talent he has on his team, I definitely, personally, I think you could. Also, when you consider the other in-game leaders in NA, there's not like a ton to choose between, but I think Steel is definitely like up there. What do you guys think? I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that he's up there. And I mean, he always was. But you have to consider, like, is there that much? Like, are we are we taking, you know, people, or are we taking MIBR into consideration here? All that kind of stuff? Or are we just strictly talking North American teams? I, 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 don't, I don't think that one even matters for me. I'll, <laughs> I'll give him the boost over Fallen right now as it is. The guy's working with four world champions. I mean, uh, that's fair. I mean, he does have it pretty good in that sense. But, I mean, Steel is definitely 
I guess one of the smarter Counter-Strike heads you have in, in North America. And I mean, he doesn't really have too much competition to go up against what it and liquid it's it's Nitro steering the ship, and then you have DAPS on, on the side of energy and Stanislaw. Outside of that, you don't really have North American in-game leaders, do you? That just full stop, because Golden's doing the in-game leading in Cloud9, and obviously MIBR wouldn't be fallen. That's not even North American. And then Renegades, Australian slash, I guess, Norwegian. And I guess United, but that's kind of a funky mix where nobody's, I mean, FNS is in that team, but still early days for them they've made a ton of changes apparently everyone's on trial there so we don't even know if that's going to be a team that's going to look the same in two weeks time uh so yeah i guess by default you kind of have to put them at the uh, the tops but i mean i think it's also worth mentioning that what staff daps has been able to do with energy is pretty impressive as well because if you look back at what ethan the kind of player he was in clg obviously didn't play to anywhere near the same level as he is in, in energy same thing with breezy as i mean or yeah, I think it's breezy. I can't even remember what he said at home uh, or at Summit. Uh, but yeah, like all of those players, the young talent energy, for instance, have done better under the leadership of Daps as well. When going into the, you know, the I guess the, the very beginning of that energy line, if you wouldn't look at Ethan or, or Breezy or Cirk necessarily as, you know, potential players who who, who would bring it to the, the tier one teams. But Daps has been able to do that. So I guess it might be a bit of a, a competition between DAPS and and uh, and Steel in that sense. Not to again discredit what Stanislaw has been able to do with complexity, because again they got top eight at the major. That's something to hang your hat on. And I mean, I definitely didn't expect that to ever happen with you know, players like Def and uh, and Android and Yay. Yeah, I think the issue here is like when we're trying to judge them. Obviously, we're trying to judge them relative to the talent they have. So. I actually think that if you just look at how different the lineups are for each player, it almost suggests who's better. So like Nitro obviously has far and away the best talent of any of the people we're discussing now, with the exception of Fallen, I guess if he's in the conversation. And he's doing a pretty good job with it. Like I certainly don't think he's bad, but I think you'd be hard pressed to say that his in-game leadership is like one of the best parts of Team Liquid. So... I, I do kind of feel like maybe other people might do as well or maybe even better if they had his team. I think Daps is probably the one who will get the most unfairly viewed because what's, I mean, he's a victim of his own success. Like when he got this lineup, there's not a fucking person in this universe who was saying this team was going to be top four at tier one events and like, you know, beating some of the best teams in the world. So the fact that he's done that with these players, well, yeah, now as a result of those accomplishments, everyone tells you that these players are all amazing and wonderful. Like they weren't before he started leading them. So I've got to give him a lot of credit for that. But then again, I think of when they have got to the top level, I don't know that he's done such a great job of like adapting when he's played the top level teams. I think that's why you see they either do like decently against the top teams or they just fall start completely. So I'd give him pretty high marks, but I can't say like he automatically wins the debate in that sense. Stanislaw is a tough one because I actually think Stanislaw doesn't have very good players in his team. Like I never thought this complexity lineup was good. That's why for me, they're the biggest shock of the teams that made the top eight of the major. So I can't really blame him too much. Then again, though, he's also been in a few teams now where he hasn't gotten that much out of the lineup. So I, I kind of feel like I just put him to one side. I don't think he gets counted as the best. And that basically leaves, yeah, basically FNS and, uh, yeah, and Steel. So FNS... I mean, it's been too long. He hasn't really done a lot recently. Steel, it's like, 
I, I think you can, it depends which criteria you pick. If you go in with the one set of criteria, Daps wins. And Steele kind of wins with like the hipster edge of like, oh, he's got easily the worst team. I, I still don't think most of the players in this team are very good. Yeah, he is playing a lot of good teams pretty closely. Sure, he's not winning that often. But I, I feel like when you look at the quality of his lineup, a lot of what they're doing has to come from what the in-game leaders bring in because he's one of the only like established elements in the team. And it doesn't even matter that Wardell's fragging everyone. Like he could absolutely frag the same way and they could lose all these games. Like I, I would say I would maybe give the nod to Steele, but I can't put Daps out of the conversation because he is getting the results. And like I said, not with a superstar lineup like, like, like uh, Nitro has. Yeah, so Steel is definitely like in the conversation, and like you said, like Daps is definitely up there as well. But uh, speaking, I will of say though that the, the problem that that we have when we consider Steel here is it is kind of a hipster pick because what you're really saying is, oh, this guy who can never play at majors and as a result will never actually have the talent to be able to prove if he's the best in-game leader. Is he the best just based on all these like weird metrics of like trying to fucking contrast and scale down the line? Like it gets really tricky. Whereas the difference is like. In a in a fair world, it probably should only be between Nitro and Daps. Like they actually have the pieces, they're doing it with the pieces. Like ultimately, that's the only time you can really like know the young game leader truly succeeded. You know, Steel's kind of like a backhanded compliment. Like, well, your team's not that good, but I guess you're doing pretty well. I think it's a, a case of where you have like liquid and energy. They have the the pick of the litter pretty much, and everything that's left over is what in game leaders like Stanislaw and uh, and Steel has to work with. So when like a team like complexity makes a top eight or a team like ghost you know beat navi and, and dream mcmasters or you know have promising results that becomes more of a, of a surprise uh and again just kind of makes you feel like they've had a stronger impact on it which i mean very well could be but you know that's not to say that they would actually do better in let's say steel and liquid would do better than nitro or steel and energy would do better than daps necessarily i think it's just the it, it's their accomplishment is heightened by the fact that they had to deal with like the, the scraps and leftovers of what was left, you know, after roster mania over in North America. And that's unexpected. So yeah, I, I guess, yeah, it comes down to like the hipster factor of it all as Duncan mentions. I mean, yeah, steel is definitely a bit of a hipster pick, but I mean, if I can be a hipster in that sense, I'll take it. By the way, look out for my Reddit post about Saibu being the best player in the world. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Maybe I'm too late on that one. I should have gotten in like a week ago. You need to pick a new player now. Like, who's going to be the? I guess Brolin's already. That's why I say he has to. That's why I say Zewu has to be overrated because it's here's the thing, and we're not just talking about the people who make like HLTV threads where yeah, people do just obviously troll and have their account will be called like you know fucking I don't know NA more majors than existence or something like yeah, those people are obviously trolling, but there are people who in theory are good faith actors who I did see on Reddit months and months ago. We're talking about when he was still in against all of authority who were like ziwu is the french simple and it's like you should never invoke that name unless a guy has done fucking monstrous things because with simple nobody would by the way before simple went to land nobody was like super hyping him people were like right yeah he's like a promising player like let's see when he joins this hellraisers team what he can do no one was saying like at that point that he was a god already we waited until he played like you know like 10 lands or something a few big ones as well and then he was doing it with like a really bad team you know so that's why the, like the ziwu one it's not that people are wrong. They might be right in two years from now, but they've jumped the gun definitely on that. Yeah, now people definitely waited until like they really went in on Simple as being you know as as great as he is. I mean, I could vouch for that myself. I was really reluctant about 
saying, I guess, too much positive about Simple, having played against them uh, myself. Like, back when he was playing for, like, A Gaming with Prizrak and those guys, I didn't even feel like he was the best player in that team. Like, but, you know, again, as he started playing... Well, well, plus, wouldn't wouldn't you say this as well, Vendetta? Like, one of the problems I have with people, like, uh, exactly this kind of player, like a Simple, a Nico, a Ziwu, is, like, their style of play is so abusive when they play the low-level teams that, like, either they have to be the best player in the world, like, they will become that at the top level because they'll be able to keep that style, or that style will completely fall apart, like many good onliners have found, and they will, like, have to just make a completely new game. Like, think of some of the people, uh, there's been some people who are, like, NA players, for example, who were outrageously good initially, but eventually when they settle into whatever their real game is it's not it's not that kind of style because like there's a this is the reason why people revere guys like nico who now at the top level can do that shit because it shouldn't be possible when you play the best players in the world to absolutely dominate them like that oh absolutely i mean you have it you've had it through i guess that's why we're so reluctant to, to really like dive in on it as well because we've seen it so many times over the course of counter-strike history right like you have these players who who ball out online and get brought into teams, they become stand-ins for certain and still, you know, crush people online and do amazing things. But yeah, like it's a very different game that's being played at tournaments at the top level compared to, you know, anything else. And yeah, when you look so dominant versus lesser opponents, obviously people are going to buy into that hype very early on. Uh, that's kind of where you need to, to you know, watch your step a little bit in that sense, not buy completely into it because some people uh, are going to be able to, to follow up on on it you know when you play against the tier one teams of the world and i would say 99 percent of them are just going to fall flat and then you have the the very very few who fall flat initially and then work their way back up to become prominent players on the scene uh and the rest of them you kind of just forget about and they end up in a tier two tier three team and never really do or amount to much uh for the rest of their careers Maybe my hipster picks would just be like a different French player. Like I'll say Jax is going to be the Randy Couture of CSGO. He's going to come in at a late age and be a world champion. Maybe that'll be my angle. All right. So there was one more team that I wanted to talk about from DreamHack Atlanta. And it won't take very long because they weren't in this tournament for very long. It's Envy. Because, I mean, obviously this is a team. They have, a, they have big sponsorship. I mean, Envy is a pretty big org. But... I mean, is this team just a waste of time? Should they break up already? I mean, can we just call it for what it is? Envy 100% brought that team in just to buy Splice's Pro League spot. That's literally the only purpose of that team, I think. I, I can't see, like, you're not feeling that team to be competitive in any sort of region. I think they would even have trouble qualifying for, like, the, the what, like, the Asian minor? I don't think any of you, they'd be even to, able to do that. Yeah, I doubt it. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, I, I don't understand what Nifty did unless he's got just, like, an insanely fat payday. Why he would hop over to, to that from Renegades or unless he was, I don't know, tired of the, the Renegades players or whatever it might be. Because now you've gone into a team where your play style or your, you know, strengths in the game clashes with JDM. And JDM's notoriously known for not being able to do anything except for one very specific thing. And then you have Cutler who's, I don't know, on retirement slash victory lap number five or something at this point in terms of collecting checks uh drones just been you know i don't know like in pro league for a couple of seasons never really done much just barely escaping relegation every season like what are what's what's the goal behind what's the purpose of this team i don't see it 
like a outside of yeah outside of holding on to a pro league spot for next season and then you revamp everything and buy out someone's you know expiring contracts i i don't see what the move here is and i mean that was pretty evidently shown as well like in their games what they lost 16 to 6 versus envy and they uh lost pretty handedly to luminosity in the elimination game as well yeah 16 11 16 6 yeah i'm actually curious like did they even manage to hold on to that pro league spot yeah they did because luminosity well what happened was luminosity oh, yes. won the same it's... amount of games but envy obviously played cloud nine in europe and renegades in australia and that's how yeah, they okay that's the next level move right there i don't know maybe all maybe right. Envy saw that coming all along so you're like this is how we're going to maintain our spot because there's no way they're beating those teams just on normal setting or in, in a normal environment yeah, they're still in relegation, so they might just end up losing to the MDL teams. Okay, let me let me ask the question this way: Is there anything redeemable about this team at all? Um, no. Not even one thing, Torin. Well, the big problem the team has is it's got washed up players, and then the players who are, might in your brain seem newer aren't really new. Like they've been around, and no one's like raving about these guys as hot prospects. So. That's actually what I think makes the team depressing. It's like, where does the team improve? Like, the only thing I would say is redeemable is I think people really overblew how bad JDM was. Like, certainly for having the most expensive gun when he was in Team Liquid, he was at times a liability. He also had some pretty good games as well. And I, I will say, if you're going to have to have as much of the game built around you, it probably should be at a low level. So for the level they're at here on Tier 2 level, I think JDM probably could be quite a serviceable player and do decently. The rest of them, I don't really see that much future in personally. Like, I've always thought Nifty could be an okay player, but maybe not as an in-game leader. But then again, I haven't seen him that much not as an in-game leader. So I don't, I don't know if he's one of those guys who can only call around himself. The rest of them, I just don't even see what the point is. Like, I don't know why, uh, uh, beyond the pro league angle, like, I don't know why you'd want to play like Cutler back at this point in time. Like, has he actually shown that he's committed to being a top pro again? Has he put in the hours? Has he recovered behind the scenes? If not, then why not just gamble on a younger player? Like, why are we, why are we bringing in people who are not only washed up, but as far as I can tell, just not good. Like, I don't really understand what they're supposed to bring to the team. Yeah, I personally, I don't really see what the point of the team is either. Like, Cutler, like you said, is on his fifth retirement round. I mean, that's all you need to know about him. So let's stop talking about, I mean, that's all That's all the time we should give Envy on a podcast like this. So instead, I, I did want to talk about ECS for a little bit, because obviously that's going to be kicking off tomorrow. Uh, we know the groups are going to be Group A with Astralis, Mousesports, MIPR, and Cloud9. Group B is going to be NRG, Team Liquid, North, and NIP. So the angle I kind of wanted to go with here is, to me, this just seems like it's going to be another Liquid Astralis final, unless they somehow meet in the semis, which, I mean, obviously that could be an upset. But is there any other team at this tournament? Like, which team can be the biggest challenge to, so we can avoid that final? Uh, I guess, it, yeah, it comes down to how brackets play out, but I'd imagine maybe Mouse Sports could be a bit of a thorn on the side for someone like Liquid. So let's say Liquid win Group B in front of, I would imagine, Energy or NIP, uh, Astralis top Group A. So we have Mouse Force and, and Energy playing out in the in the semifinals. I could see Mouse Force having a chance at beating Liquid there uh, and ruining it. Outside of that, I, I think it's going to be tough. Like, we haven't seen enough out of 
MIBR and, and God knows how long, as much as I want, you know, them to succeed because of Yanko being the coach there, I, there hasn't been really anything to convince you of that, you know, happening anytime soon. Um, so yeah, it's tough. Like, I don't see anyone doing anything with Astralis and for Liquid, I mean, they, they should be able to make it to a final spot as well. But yeah, Mouse Force is the, is the dark horse, and not in terms of winning the tournament, but just making it to a finals. Yeah, I, I think the Astralis side, the bizarre thing is there are some teams at this tournament you could pick an angle that they could beat Astralis, like North or all Danish players, or I imagine they'll be pretty up for that game. Problem is when they have played, Astralis are still convincingly better. Mouse Sports actually, I think, matches up better now. Like you saw when they were at IM Chicago, they were doing pretty well on that Nuke game, actually. That was looking like they, they were one of the teams who was in position to maybe stop that streak. So bearing in mind, we know that Mouse Sports, assuming Stick was fully integrated again, has a pretty decent map pool. They can go head-to-head -head with them. Still wouldn't pick them to win the series, but, you know, like just being able to get to a third map's a big deal against Astralis because obviously if, if they cannot already beat you on the map that you pick as well, it's going to be hard to get any pressure on them at all. I think probably the Dark Horse pick is probably NIP. Like, no one really knows how they're going to play, but every now and then they show flashes where they'll have a map, a map and a half, where they look really good. And obviously, on paper, they have the firepower to do it. So I could see a crazy world in which they could steal a map and maybe put pressure on them. I'm, I'm with Vendetta, though. It's probably more realistic to just hope one of these teams can beat Team Liquid. Personally, I don't mind seeing Team Liquid play Astralis again because... Like there's, like, there's two ways to look at it. Either Astralis just keeps pulling up the same exact kind of story of, like, we just crush Liquid, we even beat them on their maps, it's no big deal, or eventually Liquid's going to break through. And if they break through, it'll make it very, very exciting. It Perhaps even more exciting for the fact it never happened in the past. So if, in terms of Team Liquid, I will say for Team Liquid, that's the one downside is if you just didn't want that specific matchup, it's not that it has to be Astralis knocked out of the final. I think the lineup of this tournament isn't very good to knock Team Liquid out. Like, I think if you wanted Team Liquid knocked out, you wanted people like Face Clan here. You maybe even want some of the teams that you'd call more of an outside chance, like a big or someone who could maybe tactically could go up with them, could maybe exploit the map pool a little bit. Without those sorts of teams, I think Team Liquid actually is in pretty good position to go to the final here because aside from Astralis, who's going to beat them in a best of three? Like, as far as I know as well, I think they changed the format here where it's only the first match is best of one. So there's not like the two best of ones anymore. So Yeah, that's right. So even if you beat, I mean, Team Liquid players north in the first one, it's a full best of three that like Nipper and RG be playing them with. So I'd still have to favor Team Liquid. So personally, I'm not, I don't find it boring. Like I, I don't, it's not a problem for me that they keep playing in the final. It's more that I'm just still waiting for what's going to change in Team Liquid because I feel like they can't forever be in this position, you know? And I know, by the way, the reason why it's kind of like a tough one is because you can't even fundamentally say there's something wrong with their play. Like, they do look amazing when they play against some of the other top teams in the world that are really dangerous squads. It's just when they play against the Stralis, it's not even just in-game stuff. It looks like they just, they're just mentally beaten at times, you know, and, and for whatever reason, there's yeah. not really any easy fix to that, is there? No. I, I mean, I, for me, like, I don't understand this angle. Like, so many, uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, it's I guess common perception amongst the community that it's boring to watch Astralis play because they beat everyone. I think it's exciting to see, like, especially when you get repeat finals like this, when you have your Navi going up, you know, they're, they're take number three at Astralis or yes. chance number five, etc. It's fun to see the progression that some of these teams are making. So if you go back to the IM Chicago finals, right, with Astralis and Liquid, I mean, Mirage obviously ends up being a 16-14 win for, for Astralis, but that very easily could have changed for Liquid. Like, that could have gone in their direction. Maybe we see one more map. Dustu is 
notoriously, you know, back and forth, almost regardless of who plays it. So maybe you all of a sudden end up on a fifth one. Like th there's a lot of like small things that could change the entire look of a map. Obviously, when you look at the over uh, overall score and, you know, 3-0 is pretty dominant in, uh, in the fashion of uh, Astralis, that, that doesn't look too exciting. But every time there's like every time you see these teams play, there's something that's different. From, from the last matchup that can give you encouragement of hope uh, to, to see, you know, them actually trying or, you know, getting closer to figuring out Astralis. And I think for the better part in, in that I am Chicago finals, I think it was more down to just individuals on the side of, uh, of Liquid not being able to, to quite play up to the level they've done previously. Like Elise had a really, really bad finals and that's not necessarily normal for him. So, you know, if you get more production out of him, then that could swing things more into your favor and you have a much more competitive finals. So let's say, I mean, this is going to be a bit of a tough question, obviously. Let's say you guys were in Seuss's position for one day and the inevitable happens and you go up against Astralis in another final. Is it all just like the mental aspect or is there anything you would change, like maybe map picks or something tactically that you do different? Do they need to like start banning Nuke or what do you think they need to do differently against Astralis? I think Nuke is the one thing that has to go for them. I mean, I give them credit for actually trying it, but at this stage, I think we're, we're going to have to end up in a scenario where everybody starts banning out Nuke versus Astralis to the point where they stop practicing it, which is kind of what happens to a lot of teams. Like when you saw SK having their dominant streak on train, eventually teams just figured out like, well, there's no point in playing them on it. And over a course of a period of time, MIBR or SK at that time realizes that as well. They don't put as much effort into the map and all of a sudden, Somebody shows up, they put in a ton of work on the map and actually allow it through, which captures uh, the team by, uh, by surprise. Again, I think Astralis is in a bit of a unique uh, situation or position because they seem to be the team that's better prepared for everything, like any sort of, sort of weird kind of circumstance. They seem to be more professional in terms of how they approached everything. So we'll see if they are actually capable of running into that kind of an issue. Uh, but... I think, yeah, like starting from the map phase, I think they, they could still go back to having Mirage as their map pick versus Astralis. I think that's the better, the best chance they have of winning a map. Uh, and if they swap out Nuke and bring in Chain instead uh, to, to match up with Astralis, I think that can add a you know, different kind of spice to, to the entire matchup. But I think Nuke has to go out of the matchup for, for now because Liquid aren't, they've never been like the strongest Nuke team uh, or the, the second best Nuke team uh, by that. Uh, or by any means either like uh, on nuke so yeah i don't think see themselves uh see them going up against astralis anytime soon on that map but my main issue is if you're a team already who's having some kind of like confidence issues or the other teams in your head psychologically like the last thing i want to do with that team is like put them on a map they're not that comfortable on just to do kind of like a weird veto punish especially because like i, I think we haven't even seen that trend's been established as a veto punish like everyone's tried all the veto punishes against astralis they tried dust too didn't really work they tried train doesn't really work I mean, about, uh, what's bizarre is the only angle we've seen that actually does work as a veto punish is bizarrely if teams that are very good on overpass have a chance against them. Unfortunately, that is not Team Liquid whatsoever. They used to ban that earlier this year. So I think they just have to accept that in the veto, they shit out a lock. Like, but that's also, that's why you have to, as a coach, in my opinion, an element has to be psychological. Like you're not just coaching the X's and O's in the game. Like if I'm coaching Team Liquid, I'm telling them it's not a bad thing that they have all our map pool covered. 
that means we're going to play our best maps in this series. Like, if we're actually better than them, if we can beat them, this is where it should happen. These are, They're going to pick a map that we like. Like, they might pick a Mirage. It's a map we love. They might pick Inferno. In fact, in fact, if I'm team looking, I'd even be doing stuff like that. I'll let them pick Inferno, and I'll I'll pick at this one in this scenario. So, except they'll pick Nuke, obviously. But in that scenario, we're good on Nuke as well, in theory. So, I think, to me, you either just keep going with what you've been doing so far, and you hope that players themselves are going to come to some kind of breakthrough, which can happen. There's some very young players here. It's not like these guys. This is another aspect of why I've never really understood the whole angle of like, ah, oh, this final's getting boring. It's like you do know it's not the same final being played each time, right? Like it's the same teams, but they all they also know what happened in the last episode, as it were. Like they saw what that guy did that let him beat them. That's why actually it's amazing that Astralis can so dominantly keep beating people. Because remember the whole bullshit angle people gave for why MIBR got bad? Oh, because they were so good for so long, people just started reading Fallen's tactics. Well, he's a dog shit in-game leader because either A, a tactic works and pretty much always works because it fundamentally is sound, in which case there are teams that have tactics from two years ago, or B, it was a gimmick tactic, in which case you have to update your playbook with those, which is what Astralis and teams like that do. Like they do, They're not just sticking on some tactic they did four months ago because they keep winning. Like that, that never made any sense. That's like a silver analysis of what an in-game leader is doing. So to me, it's more like, Either you stick with what you're doing and make some kind of grounds on the psychological end, or you look at this one and say, right, you know what? I have played this team like, what, four or five times now. Every time it goes against me. So I've got to have a specific game plan just for this team, which wouldn't even be that outrageous an approach because this is the team that wins every event. So it's not like, I'll give you an example. Earlier this year, Coming into the year, because FaZe Clan knew we'd lost so many times to SK, a lot of what Carrigan was thinking about going into a tournament wasn't like, right, who am I going to play in the quarterfinals? And then who might be my... What he was thinking was, right, my team's already good enough to make the semis of the final, but at the moment I can't beat SK. So I'm going to plan, what will I do on a specific map I'm practicing to beat SK? What would I switch up next time I play SK? Now, that actually ended up biting him because, believe it or not, SK never did anything this year, so he actually never got to play them when it mattered and when he had his full lineup. But if they had have still been the number one team, it would have been a legit approach because eventually you are going to run into that problem. And in many ways, it's the biggest problem to solve, especially for a team like Team Liquid. So I, the other angle is maybe you just completely switch up your style and you play something like that. You play a very fast-paced game or you play an up-tempo game, take away a lot of the decision-making, or maybe you don't wait for utility and you make it so that they can't beat you out in a utility game. You just push past the smokes or you play without very much utility on the CT side and you do a lot more aggressive force buys. I don't know what angle it would be because obviously Team Liquid's tried what they think is their best approach, but you either just stick with the old approach or you take a radical approach, in my opinion. I don't really see what the point of a compromise between the two is. I mean, I will say that the teams that have managed to beat Astralis, like Navi at Cologne, for example, that was the style that they went with where they just like pushed past their utility and like even on CT side, they would do aggressive pushes with like simple and electronic, but they would just meet them in Banana on Inferno and not even let them throw their smokes and stuff. So that could definitely be an angle. But uh, let's pick a, let's pick our top four for this tournament. Let's do some quick predictions. Torin, who do you think is making the top four? Yeah, obviously, this is all within the context that because, like all the online leagues, they seed it based on where you placed in the league. I actually think Group A is like the, the most stacked group in terms of teams who could go deep. So one of these teams can't be top four. So I personally think it will be Astralis and Mouse from Group A. And then in Group B, 
Team Liquid, I'll, I'll put them in as a lock. The other one is really tough, though. I think all three of those teams can compete for the last spot. So I guess I'll go ahead and I'll pick Ninjas in Pajamas as the team I think will make it. Man, uh, I mean, for me, I, I follow the same kind of logic for, for Group A. Astralis and Mouse Sports uh, making it through to the to the playoffs there. And the only thing I'd change up in, in Group B would probably be uh, Energy and for uh, for NIP as the second place in, in Group B. To, to make it through uh then yeah that would leave us with what astralis energy in the semifinals and, and liquid mouse sports because so i kind of again yeah again still builds and i guess in that sense it doesn't really matter who comes through from group b i think we're still the, the, the key point for me i guess stuff to watch in this tournament is how mouse sports are potentially going to do versus liquid in the semifinals but yeah that's my top four yeah, that would be an interesting rematch from the new york final at least even though it's technically a different mouse sports lineup yeah. All right, so, so to cap off the show, we got some listener questions in for Vendetta technically, but I think that Thorin, you'll be able to answer a lot of these as well, so you can kind of both answer. So the first one is from One Witness, and he asks, uh, what are your thoughts on Smuya emerging as the number one UK player? And do you think players like Def have anything to offer us, as well as any up-and-comers in the UK scene we should be aware of? Uh, so I'll go uh, this right in something, and I can just go backtrack a little bit of a, uh, to one of the tops we were talking about when talking about players had a really abusive playing style against lower lower end teams who would look amazing. Smoothie was definitely that kind of a player, so he would have like those, you know, kind of like eye dropping or jaw dropping performances where he would drop, you know, forty five in regulation versus someone and look absolutely batshit insane. Um, I don't think it's like he doesn't have too much competition in terms of emerging as the number one UK player. That's really the issue. Outside of him, it's what surreal and uh, and deaf really. That was his competition for the longest period of time, and they kind of just stood at a standstill. I mean, even deaf before the major didn't really do all that much in, in complexity as for uh, the extended period of time he spent in North America. So that's not really like too much of a surprise. I think it's pretty evident for a long time uh, or for the longest time that Smuya was the most talented player in the UK. This was always going to be the, the final outcome of it. Uh, but I think he's done a pretty good job of actually adapting his way of playing compared to like, he's not the same kind of player who would drop 40 uh, versus, you know, these, uh, these lower end teams and whatnot. He's actually learned how to play team counter-strike in a much better fashion than what i expected of him uh, initially and he, i mean he even talked about that when we were when he was on the couch at uh, summit as well the fact that he learned he came to the realization of how bad of a counter-strike player he was like again this is his words as well um the fact that he learned he quickly realized how much he had to learn just from playing with someone like gob and everything and i think that's a pretty pretty good realization to come uh or to, to have like that early on in your pro career so i think he's uh he's bound to to do some some damage and have a pretty solid career within cs um when it comes to other talents within the the uk scene i think it's still pretty starved in terms of what you can expect uh again it's a lot of the same usual suspects that keep roaming around and and the better teams i think out just for i guess not even a full uk team but the closest you can get to it that would actually be doing well for themselves is someone like endpoint but even then you still have players not necessarily new talents like it's pulse it's mighty max it's thomas so it's guys that's been around for quite some time like yeah, it's 
I guess they'd be the equivalent of, you know, someone like Jackson Lucky, right, in France. They've been around for a long time. They've played at the highest level within their country. Obviously, France is a bit of an exception because you had teams like G2, Vitality, or I guess NB, LDLC at that point. Uh, but they haven't really made a step up. So I don't think there is anyone to necessarily look out for who's going to be, you know, blowing anyone's minds within the next six months or or even a year from from the UK scene. But that's just kind of the, the nature of the game. It's uh, like to become um, a known name or like a, a solidified good player uh, at the pro level in Counter-Strike. That's, that's something that's going to take a long, long time unless you're just like a completely unique prospect. So, and what do you think about the UK scene or about Smuya? Yeah, the, the angle of like best UK player obviously means fuck all. That's like being the best writer on HLTV.org. It's not a site known for writing, you know. It's not, hasn't got fantastic journalists there. They mainly do other things, stats, news and stuff, you know. So like the problem is, yeah, what competition did he have? Like none of the other people, I think even listed Surreal, Def, actually are particularly good individual players. Like I think you saw that like Def, if anything, the, the hype I've heard behind the scenes is just people who say he's a good teammate and, you know, he like knows what he's doing in the game. So if anything, it sounds like he's billed as more of like a supportive element of the team. So I don't think he ever was like in line to be some top player. And I have to say, I haven't seen him for this long complexity. I think he's fairly limited as a player. Like even if all those things are true, some people just don't have the talent level to take them much further. So I think Smuya is like far and away the best player we've seen for quite a while from the UK. Obviously one of the only ones that's really had a proper chance in some of the international teams and eventually got his way up to a big, which was in itself a crazy kind of break. Like that didn't have to happen. They could have gone with a German player and he would just be locked out and no one would really even know about this guy. Just be someone with a bit of hype playing on smaller teams. So like for me, it's, it's definitely fair that he's the only one that's known. He's much, much better than the rest. And also he's actually now done it online a bunch of times. So I think that's pretty legit. I'm still not quite sure how much further he can go as a player because I do think he has some like discipline issues in the game. Not personality wise, I'm not going from that angle. I just mean as in like when you watch him in the game, I think he takes like overly aggressive duels sometimes and does kind of in line with what Vendetta was saying, like play that style that used to be so good when he's playing the bad players. So when it, when it works, he looks awesome. Then he has games where he just does nothing. And I think they need him a lot in big. I would probably say the only player off the top of my head I can think of I'd even recommend would be there's a guy who currently plays for Epsilon, oh, the one that Frey? beat, yes, Freya, where they yeah. beat um, Optic the other day online. He actually, like, I saw him at the Elite Series as well. I think he might have been on in point or some, some team like that, well, infused maybe, I think. And he actually looked like he had some skills. Like, he actually had, like, some good aim, actually was pulling off some good rounds. So, like, even then, though, like, that's someone who's been around the UK quite a while now. Like, it's not like he's just came, like, last year. Like, as far as I know, he's been around a couple of years. He's been in the top UK teams. He's still a fairly young player, I think. But the problem in the UK scene is, like, they still haven't gotten over a lot of what I would just, what should just be teething problems for a scene, but they're just permanent over there. So people doing things like when I was at the Elite Series, so if I talked to a player and said, oh, this guy in that other team looks like he has promise, they'd be like, oh, that team's dead already. And I go, well, what do you mean? They're, they're here at the line. They go, oh, yeah, well, they're obliged to play this tournament because there's like a roster lock, but they've basically already decided to kick that guy and they're getting another guy. I bet, but why are they getting that guy? Oh, because they, uh, they just, they're friends with him. It's like these kind of like very, very, I'd just call them like very immature moves mean that I'm sure there probably are one or two other players who maybe they're not as good as Smuya, but they might be like talents also worthwhile. But 
you're never going to get anywhere if you stay in that kind of a scene. So for me, I think if you even want to do it, Freya probably has the right idea going abroad and trying to play with a bunch of international players because I think it's the only way you'll make your name in 2018 or 2019. All right, we have another question here from Dom. Uh, given Refresh's recent expansion, I guess he's talking about into League of Legends, obviously a lot more Blast events. Uh, what are your thoughts regarding potential monopolization in esports? Is esports heading in that direction? Does more need to be done to prevent large-scale control of esports by single companies? Well, I mean, well, didn't the League of Legends expansion for Astralis fall through? Or did that actually happen? I'm no, they just no, no, it, the it happened, the but they're not calling it Astralis. Oh, so they still, I guess, own Origin or whatever. Yes. They just basically bought their slot and also, like, uh, decided to use their name since it has a League of Legends value. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, in terms of, I, I don't think that kind of a movie is going to be any sort of, like, indication of that we're moving towards monopolization or if you can call it that uh, in, in Counter-Strike. Uh, I think biggest franchising would be, you know, the 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 thing that people are alluding to in that sense. Now, I don't think it's going to be an issue team-wise, for instance. There's already rules in play in terms of having, you know, not one entity owning multiple teams. This is just why I saw Heroic, for instance, getting sold off from the refresh, uh, refresh side of things. Also, Godsend being, you know, sold off as well. Uh, and I think franchising, I mean, it's always going to be something that's enticing to, I, I would imagine, you know, a lot of team owners and whatnot, but I don't know. It's been a tried thing in, in Counter-Strike way, you know, if you go way back and look at CGS, that didn't pan out. Uh, and I don't know, like for, for me, I don't know too much to like or enough about the inner workings of uh, the various scenes to uh, to see whether or not a franchise model has been successful at any given point or not. But from the outside view, uh, I don't see how it's beneficial. And I think a lot of a lot of just organizations or teams in general have kind of seen that for Counter-Strike an open circuit is is pretty successful. Like it, it works in that way. I don't think we need to go the route of like an Overwatch League or or an LCS or I guess an LEC or whatever they're calling it now. So, I mean, my, my guess would be that more of what he's talking about is obviously that Blast is going to have like, I think they said like oh, an event every month next year. And obviously they own Astralis, they own... Blast so refreshed kind of like us. Yeah, so teams pretty much like keeping Astralis to themselves and making sure right. they attend their own events. Uh, I think that's a very unique situation to be in. Uh, I guess it could have been a little bit different if ESports still had been owners of uh, either BP or Navi, where they would have hosted, you know, Epicenter every single month. But no, I think this is more of a one-off than a, a starting trend, uh, at least within CS. I don't think that's. Uh, that's the case, but obviously, I could I could see it being a bit of an issue because obviously, Astralis are going to be, uh, I would assume, required to to attend all of the Blast events, and if that's going to be, I think it's what eight or nine events they announced or something for for the upcoming year. It was something like that, yeah. Yeah, that's obviously going to take a big chunk out of the tournament schedule, and it's hard to see just given how many tournaments there is going on in Counter Strike this year, and it's probably going to be more in 2019. How that's not going to clash with other things i guess the only upside is that luckily blast tournaments are pretty short it's a two-day event you fly in the day before fly out potentially you know the same day or the day after so it's a total of four days out of uh, the week that that it really costs you it's not like one of these lengthy 10-day events that really strains on you in that sense 
So it might not be an issue at all. Uh, but yeah, I think it's a very unique uh, situation for a refresh and a Strauss, and I don't see any other like team uh, or like owners uh, going the same kind of route unless they get an insane VC investment, which I don't even see uh, being that likely. But Duncan would probably be like way better for for this kind of a question than, than me, just because he knows more of the in and outs of the of how these things work. Like in terms of the blast one, this is one of those ones where I feel like it's just Reddit hype. Like one of the problems, and I don't say this to flame people, is if you're just a fan, like you only get to read like interviews and press releases and watch talk shows. Like the best you can hope for is that someone like Richard or me like has to like subtly drop a piece of information that we actually have that we're having to present as opinion because it's not like verified or something we can officially report on. Otherwise you have no way of putting together any of the moves behind the scene. And so I'll say the more that I've ever found out about like the inner workings of politics in esports, a lot of it's not possible to predict. You have to really know what a person's specific philosophy is, etc. So I don't even really understand. It reminds me of what happened with Epicenter, actually, where when the first Epicenter was run, everyone was like, what a tournament. This is amazing. What an ES force has all this money. They're going to take over the scene. Imagine if they get a major. It's like, you know, for no second of their life ever was Valve considering giving a major to someone who owns a tournament, a betting company, and teams that play in the tournament. Like, that was never in Valve's mind for even one moment because of the obvious conflict of interest. So likewise, as long as Blast owns Astralis, uh, Refresh owns Blast and Astralis, they will not be getting a major. So you can forget that dream. So without a major, they're going to be really hard pressed to try and make the scene exclusive or have any sort of a monopoly. So that in itself, I think is actually kind of like a counterbalance to anyone who would take over the scene. So for example, maybe ESL would like ESL Pro League to be the only league and then tie in the whole Grand Slam and that would be like a soft exclusivity. But at the same time, if they don't get all the majors, they don't get to be a monopoly. So the main thing here is like Valve's involvement because they are obviously the people who can shut it down overnight. Now, I would definitely not want what happens in Overwatch and League of Legends to happen where the dev basically just runs the whole thing and they're the ones who make all the decisions because I think there's a reason why we have a better scene in our game than those games. I don't think it's just that the game's better. I think the scene actually provides for better matches, better storylines. Like you get regular breaks, but at the same time you have your busy periods. So with someone like Blast, the other reason why I'm not that concerned either is right imagine that they did get soft exclusivity so they got not only astralis but let's say they got a couple of other teams so for example like cloud nine mibr i believe these are other teams nip i think they might have assigned all of these teams to deals to do blast proceeds at least two or three of them they did okay imagine they do nine tournaments with those teams right well first of all out of those teams the only one that's really blowing your socks off is astralis so if you hold a tournament as esl did this year with new york where you have navi team liquid mouse sports you have the phase clan if you have those teams and blast pro series has astralis and then a bunch of good teams already there's parity right there some people are going to watch the other tournament and definitely depending on the hours around the world so I already think that part of what makes them seem like they're in a strong position is just that Astralis is the number one world, number one team by far. The second that drops off, if Astralis is the number four team and we're making that comparison, the ESL event there wins hands down. Like they would have like three of the top four and Astralis would be the third. So it's not even that big a draw. Then you've got to add 
even though they've announced that they'll do nine events, you'll notice they only announced, I believe, four actual locations. So they had like, you know, Miami, Lisbon, whatever. But here's the thing. They didn't announce the other five. Now, that already is an example of where my experience in the esports industry tells me, do not take that five additional events as gospel. That is what they would like to do. That is what they're trying to negotiate. But that is definitely not going to happen. Because I can tell you, when I did the first Blast Pro Series, which would have been 2017, they were telling us like, oh, there'll be like five Blast Pro Series next year. I believe they're on their, th they ha have, are about to do their third one and the year's almost over. So like, it's all well and good planning these things, but definitely haven't pulled it off yet. And the fact they haven't announced it tells me that they haven't got the deals done. And then the other ang angle would be what a whack monopoly that would be because their tournaments are kind of great events if they're supplementary to the scene because they're only two days long. Like that's a great format to have a small little tournament that has its own excitement, something of an exhibition feel with the aim maps and stuff. That's not a real tournament though. Like, like say what you want about ECS. Like I don't think ECS has the best format. ECS format murders Blast Pro Series. Like it's actually a, a real tournament. Like it's a tournament that has proper bracket structure, like seeding, etc. Like unfortunately for Blast is they have some elements that are really nice leverage in the scene. But other elements, I think are, people just overplay it because they think, oh, I could pull this move and that move. And it's like some of those moves don't really work. Like one of the great things about the CSGO scene being so wide open is that a lot of what will stop anyone being able to control the scene is that the other actors within the scene aren't idiots. Like if I'm the second or third most powerful person and the most powerful person goes to make a, a exclusivity move. So this basically happened three years ago with ESL. What happens is the second, third, and fourth people get together and go, well, if the three of us combine our powers, we can offer an alternative that will break the potential monopoly. And therefore, teams will just say, by choosing to go with neither party, it'll just reset the scene to what we have currently and we'll just keep playing it out as it is now. Like, if anyone could do a monopoly, I think they would do it instantly. Like, it'll always benefit the person who runs the monopoly. So I think the fact you haven't seen that yet is just because no one's it. no one's got enough power in enough areas that they can really shut everyone out. Right, yeah, that's definitely a good point. So we have uh, two more questions. Uh, one here from Curfee, the friend. Uh, with you being part of Room on Fire, are you guys considering adding more people to Room on Fire? If so, whom? And if not, do you guys have any plans coming up? Uh, I'll say... I'll say I'll just uh, say it uh, nice and quickly. Not too much has been happening with uh, with Room on Fire for uh, for quite some time, simply because it ended up being in a situation where we wanted it to first be uh, a place where um, basically broadcast talent could uh, could get together to to work together to obviously get better uh, uh, a better situation for themselves again when dealing with tournaments and whatnot, but. Uh, also, we wanted eventually to to start creating a lot of content uh, for ourselves, but with how busy the schedule a lot of the people involved with Room of Fire uh, are, uh, it just never really, really came to be. So for now, I wouldn't really expect anything more to come out of Room of Fire uh, with any in any recent uh, future, and I don't think there's going to be any sort of additions to it because it it's not really it's not really uh fulfilling the the purpose that it initially had um uh, sad, as sad as that is uh really but yeah it's because we've gone from being i guess uh 
I think it was at most eight or nine members uh, within uh, Room of Fire to now obviously having Yanko being a part of uh, uh, NYBR. He doesn't do uh, talent uh, work anymore. Obviously, Natu's busy with uh, ends. Vince stopped uh, stopped casting events and so on. So uh, and similar is is doing Overwatch League. So it's kind of fallen flat in that sense and didn't really uh turn out to to be the the project that we wanted it to be but who knows you know we can it's still there and i mean there's still wishes to to create content and do stuff that we can uh we can uh, put out but it's something about wanting it to do it on a regular basis if we're actually going to do it instead of just having the one thing a year where we uh we make something of it and that's really the the tough part of it making it all come together yeah, I mean, I like the greatest games in CSGO history or whatever that series was called, but uh, maybe we'll yeah. see another episode of that at some point. I think actually Jason is working on something like that, but I can't speak too much on it. Uh, and again, like that would be uh, better directed at Jason himself, but he's pretty much spent the entire year on a plane. So it's been it's been hard for him to, to really make all of that come together. Uh, uh, as quickly as he'd wanted to, but he definitely has like a short list of games he wants to cover and whatnot. So eventually something will, will come out of it, but not anytime soon. All right. We got one final question from Relentless. Is there anything you were considering doing or on track to do before you got heavily involved into esports? And I guess oh, also you can answer this one. Like what I wanted to do before or what my, my yeah, if you were, yeah. in life was. Uh, my initial plan in life was always to become a lawyer because that's what my dad used to do. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, for, for quite some time, I was, uh, uh, I, or once I, I, uh, put that off, uh, after the, I guess lost interest in, in this, uh, studying law, uh, I was always planning to be, uh, become a journalist, uh, and, uh, basically, uh, do that for a living, whether or not it would be, you know, sports journalism or investigative or journalism or what have you, that wasn't really something I'd uh, planned out too well, but that was always the, uh, the initial plan. But then things kind of just got sidetracked. I was always the kind of person who was very good in school, uh, uh, up to the point where I got to university where I just didn't find any joy in, in what I was studying. So uh, it eventually just ended up being a pretty unfulfilling grind to uh, to get through uh, each semester, and actually just sent me into um, a, you know a, a period where uh, I was uh, dealing with depression. So and the one thing that actually got me out of it was uh, being able to uh, to do esports stuff. That's kind of where I got my first uh, breakthrough, like starting casting with Anderson Semler and feeling like I had something else going for me because the one long-term plan that I had for myself uh, when I realized that I'm not going to be a pro player, I'm not going to be the greatest thing to ever grace Counter-Strike or anything like that, um, which I realized fairly early on. Um, But, you know, I guess the normal life plan that I'd made for myself uh, didn't give me the same kind of satisfaction that I'd hoped it would. So, uh, in a sense, I'm pretty happy about how things turned out. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Like, and, uh, still, I would imagine that when or if the you know the the esports adventure ends, I would still go back and gravitate towards something uh, in the direction of either media or, or journalism in that sense. 
Yeah, those old uh, Nip Gaming TV was definitely what got me into CSGO. So it's great that you went in that direction. What about you, Soren? What do you want to do? Uh, I mean, in my case, obviously, it was a long time ago. It's like we're talking like 18 years ago or something. So it's not really so. Life. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I was like, it was over half my life ago, pretty much. So <laughs> yeah. I would say it's more like, like at the time I was doing university, I was doing a computer science degree. So in theory, I was supposed to go on and become some sort of programmer or something. But the thing is, esports was kind of like really fortuitous that luckily during the time just before I went to university was when I started fucking around with some of it online and just doing some basic writing and stuff and kind of got my in at that point in time. It just timed perfectly with when I just realized like actually computer science is a very boring subject for me like it wasn't any of the things i thought it would be in all the all the wonderful aspects of expression you basically had to get through so much in terms of the technical aspects of learning all the programming languages that like to be at that kind of level would be so difficult i quickly realized like this isn't for me so the main thing is like you can either look on the bright side and say since in the end esports worked out it's going well now it was all fine you know i found what i was supposed to do or maybe esports dies in three years and this was just like a 20-year arrested development cycle and now i have to actually figure out what i do want to do with my life and just get on with it basically and with that existential crisis that's what we will end the show on thanks to both of you for coming on and uh Remember, everyone listening, to follow the CSGO Hour on Twitter and subscribe on Spotify or SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This was the CSGO Hour. Thanks for listening.